Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we'll be talking to some of the team behind the Open EO project. So first, let's talk about launches. A lot more things have gone up since we last spoke in early July. 185 things have gone up this year, so that's a huge increase since we last spoke. There's a couple more ISI sats, so these radar satellites in the suitcase. That's interesting. I thought they were just putting one up, but I hadn't realised it was a constellation that was going up. I should yeah. pay more attention to the news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you not listening? <laughs> and it's really nice to see Finland in spacetrack.org because this is a Finnish company. What do you think about the probe that India's launched to try and get to the South Pole of the Moon? I thought that was quite cool. It's not really Earth observation, but it was quite interesting. I think India is doing some amazing things yeah. in space, as many other countries are. We're in that second space race, aren't we? It feels. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's talking about the moon again, and that's great. Yeah, it's definitely a cool time to be just hanging around the space sector. So let's do the news then. It's the 23rd of July, 2019. A very hot 23rd of July in the UK. <laughs> oh, oh, day of summer has arrived. <laughs> Virtually everything that I've found since we've last spoken seems to be, if not directly related to or partially related to machine learning. We often try and pick out sometimes eclectic things, new stories that we've seen, but i just give you a sample of the companies that I've seen talking about machine learning in late June, early July 2019, Development Seed, Esri, Fast AI, and even just now I saw Cosmic Works talking about machine learning. The ubiquity of this now is really kicking off and all these companies are starting to chuck this stuff out there to be used. So taking Esri as an example, they've just had their um, international user conference and you could say that they're new to the game, but they're certainly using notebooks now and using their ArcGIS Learn classifier. And the thing that strikes me more than anything else is they're just, all these things in fact, are just making it easier people to do this machine learning deep learning thing so i'm looking at this code from what just learn and it's just step 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 show results so that's model train that you know set the model build the model batch it up run the model um it looks very similar to fast ai i don't know if it's built on that but i feel that everybody can do this now i sat down recently and played around with fast ai and i got results in a day I was amazed. Yeah. And there is a danger because do you really know what's going on underneath the hood? Yeah. But it's it's almost another discussion because I think it's a very valuable discussion. But what I'm seeing is more companies making geospatial analysis using machine learning more prevalent than ever before. Someone showed me the difference between code written in TensorFlow and code written in Keras, which is a wrapper for TensorFlow. And it was mm. amazing how in using Keras in, I don't know, it was five or six lines, I think, of Python code, it was able to train and run a model that if you'd used the the standard TensorFlow Python would have probably have been 
and the 50 or 60 lines of code maybe yeah it really uh, it struck me and i thought wow if if you can just download and install keras then you're you're almost good to go and get models up and running really quickly you've absolutely hit the nail slap bang on the head this is what it's all about i'm looking at this cosmic works solaris blog that's just been released Mm-hmm. That, what you've just said is what they're trying to do here. It says, are you a Python developer who doesn't want to write tedious pre- and post-processing functions? And boom, we've got it for you, the yeah. API. This is what you do. And you're like, you look down, you're like, oh, this is cool. Okay, you know, these results look good. What do I do? Oh, five lines of code. This is getting crazy. Yeah. As long as you've got the data configured, it's the elephant in the room, which is getting your data in a position to be able to do something with it, whether you need to download it, <laughs> or process it in the cloud which is what we should be doing I guess that's what everyone is keen on but whatever you have to do to it once you've got it in a position you can do something with the actual code to do the processing the deep learning is for you and me very simple yeah well I'm going to stay on the topic of machine learning then because I found an article that was basically saying that the Department of Defense's joint AI center is going to open source the natural disaster satellite imagery data sets that they have and this is quite an interesting article to read so what they're trying to do is encourage the use of machine learning techniques for assessing building damage and the building damage data set comes from post-disaster satellite imagery. And that disaster can be different things. It can be flood or landslide, earthquakes, volcanoes, that sort of thing. Mm. And the data set that they're releasing is called XBD. And it's bonkers. There's 700,000 satellite image clips of buildings before and after eight different types of natural disasters. So the the ones I've um, mentioned, plus a, a few others. And that all tots up to over 5,000 square kilometers of data sets covering the globe. And I think this is, this is really great stuff that these data sets are beginning to be opened. One thing I would call upon everybody that's trying to open up their data sets, their, their image data sets, in order to help machine learning side of things in earth observation and remote sensing is to work together. So I think we've mentioned on the podcast before about how up until now there's, there really hasn't been enough well-curated data sets, sort of well-labeled data sets that you can use for training and validation and that sort of thing. And I, I think what it really needs is people to come together and, and agree on how these can be stored and uh, shared and everything else. And it's not to say that everybody has to just go through one hub, but really that just make sure that there aren't differences in the training data because that would be a, a big problem. And I think we've mentioned as well on the podcast that the mlhub.earth that Radiant Earth are sort of involved with and they're concentrating on now is one place where they're trying to have a, a common sort of set of tools and data sets and repositories and yeah. different things. So it would be great if all these places could just interact a little bit um, as they put out their data and they put out their methods and everything else. I do think sort of on this sort of general machine learning topic that we need it to calm down a bit yeah. to really understand who and what is doing what and what the difference is between, yeah, like you say, Keras and TensorFlow and why a geospatial person needs to know that. Okay, you know, that's a simple example because it's a, it's a wrapper for it, but all this different stuff and what's a ResNet 34 versus a ResNet 50. We've come a long way from trying to pick out cats and dogs. And there's a lot of information to consume from your standard user. And and again, it kind of always strokes back to the same point, which is who are the users? How many users are there here? Is it aimed at the individuals, the academics, the, you know, the, the big companies? Because they're all faced with their own sort of 
decisions? Are they going to develop their own processes or are they going to rely upon pre-built models or, or all this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's absolutely critical because I can see what's going to happen. This is an incredibly complex area. Models will be presented to the user as this is the one you want to use, but there's no onus on the user to delve into that model really and and understand what it is trying to do. Now, I recently had the requirement to assess different types of processing for deep learning type models. And so as part of that, I was trying to really get into what are the different layers, what do they do in a convolutional neural network? Mm. And that was fascinating. I'm trying to understand what each one of these layers does, or, or just trying to understand what the, the pattern of these different layers and how they convolve and then uh, reduce size and all these various different things and the huge number of different ways that you can use uh, these types of neural net models and how subtle differences will have quite large ramifications in terms of the output. It's really fascinating. But at the same time, I don't think anyone else is really going to sit there and go like, oh, okay, before I do any of this analysis, I'm going to look at this, this and this. They're just going to do a quick Google search or will be yeah. presented with the most common model or whatever it is from a, a library. And we'll go, okay, well, I'll just slap this onto my data. But I think that what you highlight is, is all sorts of warning signs <laughs> yes. you know, going off. Yeah. You know, well, just slap this on the data. What is a good result? Sometimes we need to check that in our minds. It shouldn't just be the, the race to 99%. Okay, I will take us away from machine learning then. First off, before I get into my next news story, I've got a quick update, and it's to do with the Dundee Satellite Receiving Station, which I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, has had its central funding withdrawn from it and is doing a crowdfunder. Well, they topped £10,000 this week towards their target of 65,000. So that's coming along. We wish them all the best in terms of getting a successful crowdfund because it's a really useful service. The other thing I wanted to quickly say was an interesting piece of work that I saw published through the University of Bath here in the UK, but it's um, research that's done with researchers from NASA as well. And it's basically looking at satellite-based early warning systems trying to spot bridges that are at risk of collapse. And it's an interesting application, I think, which is why I wanted to highlight this. It's using Cosmos SkyMed high-resolution SAR data and Sentinel-1A and B SAR as well. And they have worked up an algorithm that can basically look at very fine movements and changes in bridges and this is sort of stemmed from the bridge collapse in Genoa in 2018. Yep. And they've gone back and they've basically done put their algorithm back through uh, the imagery for that bridge and have seen that there was a deformation that was happening in the months leading up to that collapse. This kind of work is very impactful, but I think that most people don't understand how much processing has gone on to derive this. Because, I mean, they're talking about millimetric changes. That's the the difference. I mean, there, there were methods before that could look at centimetric changes, but we're talking about millimetric now. Yeah, and I sometimes see this question asked on forums and at various places saying, this is cool, how do I do insight on it? <laughs> when you're talking like at that level, there's a lot of processing and a lot of expertise involved in it as well. And this really is the leading edge, isn't it? Having data fusion of different types of radar, I think an interesting way to go to try and enhance the knowledge that you get out of the image. I wanted to mention Phosphor G UK 2019. Oh, yeah. 
So I know that you've already bought your ticket and booked your hotel or whatever you were staying <laughs> Airbnb in advance. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to attend Sandy. They've got an amazing array of sponsors. Uh, yes. They've done brilliantly. So huge kudos to them. Are you speaking there? I am speaking. Yeah, I'm really chuffed, actually, from memory. For the upcoming 2019 conference, there are two remote sensing sessions, full-on sessions. So I think that's brilliant. Um, it really shows how Earth observation in the open source world is beginning to be used a lot more. So yes, I'm going to be talking about, well, I'm basically going to be just hyping up everyone else's work and talking about some of the cool stuff that we've come across as part of doing this podcast, but also in my day-to-day work. I'm just trying to highlight to people, actually, where they can find some of the you know, some of the GitHub repositories and things of some of the... the really novel and exciting projects that are out there trying to find new ways of handling earth observation data and remote sensing data cool you're up against machine learning though i know yeah i know (laughs) come to me everyone come to me (laughs) (laughs) need to go and see other stuff Okay, so we're lucky enough this episode to be joined by Matthias from the Open EO project. Matthias, could you just sort of quickly introduce who you are? Yeah, sure. Uh, nice to be here. Yes, I'm located in Germany and working for the University of Münster um, with nine other or ten other partners uh, on the Open EO project, which is funded by the European Commission. I'm more or less a software engineer basically started with EO in my studies, um, but it was a very small amount of things that we did with remote sensing and EO. But nowadays it gets much more, um, but all the time when new things come up, I need to ask the partners to explain me the things <laughs> behind it. Yeah, there's so much changing at the moment in EO. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's faster than you can learn. and. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it's it's a very interesting field. You say that it's a funded project. How long has the project been going and how long do you have left on the project? It's a three-year project and started in uh, September 2017. Okay. So we're basically halfway through and have another year until September 2020. That said, we're basically at the moment in a stage where we're going to get the first productive systems out there. We hope that they are available in around late August or September. So then it's the first time where we can actually give users access to our systems and let them play around and see whether the things that we've invented here and worked on actually work. My understanding is that what you guys are trying to do is as a consortium of different organizations is put together an uh, an API that people can use in order to process data on the back end and then feed whatever you've processed through to different front ends. Is that correct or have I got that wrong? Yes, that's basically correct. The, the biggest part is building the layer, the interoperable layer, the API. And we also implement um, already several backends so that we see that it's uh, working for more than one backend, of course. And the idea behind is that there is now quite some data out there, like petabytes of Sentinel data and whatever. Like in the old days, you would just download the data you need and then process it using ArcGIS or QGIS or whatever software you have. And then you have your results. But 
nowadays it's hard to download all the data because it doesn't fit either your uh, hard drive or your memory. So now we need to move the algorithms and the computational power on the back ends, on the cloud providers, and send the algorithms we want to uh, execute um, and the data we want to process away from our computers to the servers. So you have multiple providers for that at the moment. Like you can run processing things on Google, on Amazon backends, or you have commercial providers like GX Digital Globe. And all these companies have different APIs for their tools that they offer. And you don't really know what's going on in the background. So first of all, you need a language to speak to these backends, like a common language, so that if you want to change between these backends or you want to compare the results that they are producing, you don't want to implement that several times, you only want to implement it once. So we basically offer a common language for these APIs so that users only need to write their algorithms once and then send it to multiple backends. In the end, they can download the results and compare them. That is very useful if you are more into science and um, like want to reproduce data um, results later um, or want to share with your audience that is reading your papers that you can reproduce the results whenever you want and it's not a black box that is running in the background. Like if you send code to Google Earth Engine, at the moment it's free and you can reproduce the results, but you don't know what Google is doing in the background. You need to trust them that yeah. it's correct. If multiple parties compute the same things, then you can at least say, well, it's high probability that it's correct. I wonder if you could sort of shine some light on who you think the users are. And we've always had this sort of internal discussion about who is going to be the user, because there is definitely more data than ever before. Absolutely. I think everybody is totally in agreement with that. But it almost sounds to me as if this is more, at the moment, focused on academic people, or am I misreading what you're saying? Well, that's a good question. Of course, like the reproducibility thing is more for academics, mm. but it's also I think good for um, commercial entities because you only need to produce your code once and then you can basically change your service provider whenever you want. And that is quite valuable because then you're not like locked into a certain uh, provider. I think it's also useful for the service providers because they have a much larger audience if they have a common API. But surely we um, have a big audience from academics, I think. But we're also trying around with um, some more not so tech savvy users. We have a, a model builder where you can basically just, it's basically like the uh, GIS model builder. Take a process and then uh, insert the parameters by in a nice form and select with a bounding box in a map and stuff like that. So that you don't need to actually write any code in our R or Python or JavaScript clients that you can just basically switch from uh, what I just told, that you can't process any longer these big amounts of data in, on your desktop. Yeah. But there are tons of users out there that are actually using ArcGIS in, like in local governments and stuff like that, uh, or QGIS. And at some point, I think these users need to change their tools. I mean, ArcGIS also already invested into cloud processing. And I think many of these users are not 
yet aware of that they need to switch at some point, but I think they will eventually need to switch. And that could be a large user group as well, because these users that are not so tech savvy will only want to learn once and not want to learn like 100 APIs. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I can definitely see what you're saying. I 100% see this benefit and what you guys are doing is super incredible. But what I'm seeing in my sort of day-to-day when I work with clients and stuff is that they generally, and again, this is only anecdotally, but they're generally working, they're working in the cloud, but they're working within their own cloud or they're working within their own servers. And I'm not so sure about the people getting this the, the skill gap I'm more sort of seeing people being stuck in what the companies they're working in workflows. I think what you're saying is right. I think sooner or later, and perhaps my feeling is later, that we all have a sort of switch that's flicked and people start working in a kind of different way. But even though within companies, a lot of data resides on servers, people seem to me at least to be doing things more locally than up in an external cloud. For timing, it's indeed true that we are quite early with what we're doing. It's a research project and at the moment we're exploring things and there are still issues we need to solve that are probably not solved in September 2020. It will, I think, take some more time to get all this interoperability solved. And regarding the other thing, is that um, we are writing software that is also able to run uh, locally. Basically, we just define the API. You can uh, also wrap your uh, local machines or clusters or whatever you have um, using this API. And as you already mentioned, the diocese, we try to actually put this OpenEO API on top of some of the dioceses so that you don't need to interfere with the dioceses APIs or interfaces but with the OpenEO API and so it's not that it must be always on the cloud but it can also run uh, internally in your company or whatever. Just to carry on on this sort of discussion if I was to throw up say my own AWS instance and I put some data into an S3 bucket would I be able to use OpenEO to process the data on those S3 buckets, but also to process, say, some of the archive data that's on one of the DS systems, and then pull those together in some sort of front-end app or something like that? Yeah, we don't have an AWS backend at the moment, but um, okay. it's a thing for the future. But maybe it could be in any other backend that we're currently supporting. You're basically um, saying that you want to transfer data between backends. Um, That's the thing we need to tackle. The reason I was asking is because I'm in discussions at the moment with a small consortium about trying to pull together some form of app that would use cloud process data. And we've been having this discussion that's been going on for a while about, well, should we use the DS systems or should we use GBDX or, you know, what other systems are out there that we should use? And if we do use DS, which one should we use? Like you were saying right at the beginning, everything's just a little bit different. And this seems like the perfect way forward for for our project if if it's doing what i think you're saying it's doing yes um, i think it could actually be a good thing for your project as well because you can basically don't need to decide which backend you want to support long term but just start with one that supports open yo and then you can later switch to whatever backend is suitable for you yeah. there are still issues with like that if you have 
data at one backend and other data at other backends, then still you need to like basically transfer it somehow. And we try to not do it through the user, but basically through do it through the like fast internet connections. But that's still to be explored. Like um, the first things we tried here are with the diocese, which are connected to I think Sentinel Hub and Veto platforms okay. um, for OpenEO. But we still need to figure out in the next month whether um, or how well that performs. I'm not sure whether there are actually experiences out there with people who did that more generally. Otherwise, we will be the first ones to try it out. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't see this as a criticism. More of a kind of um, discussion point. And and it's this. We, uh, as a body of people, as an industry, talk a lot about enabling non-specialists people who are new to it and you know as you rightly say there's a there's a whole group of people these theoretical people out there um, that could be using this data and we still have a habit of just chucking stuff over the fence whether it be data or code or new ideas and expecting uptake in it i'm very happy with a python client perfect for me but the general user who, you know, taking your example of ArcGIS and all this kind of stuff, who's familiar with toolbox-driven or model-building-driven geospatial analysis, if I'm in that user group, am I going to be able to access OpenEO? Yes, indeed, through our web-based client. That's actually out there, editor.openio.org. Basically a web client that you can use, and it's very similar to the Google Earth Engine code editor, I think, but it replaces the code editing area with basically a model builder. Yeah. So that could be a start, at least for the users that don't want to write code. They don't need to write code, and actually they can't write code in the editor. <laughs> so I think that's a good start for them. Um, we still need to think about how we can make it easier for them. But in the end, it should be like easy as using RGS or QGIS that they just need to think about, that's my data, that's my things that I want to accomplish, click around a little bit, enter some parameters into their processes, and then say, I want to see it on a map. Yes. Publish it. And Absolutely. I mean, that that is definitely the biggest audience. Indeed. It's actually, I think in the future, there will be a bigger audience um, you could also think about like journalists going around and finding information about global warming or whatever, like de- deforestation yeah. and stuff like that. In the long run, we should be able to basically give these users a tool that they can, without any knowledge about remote sensing, get information about their topic they are writing about. It's a long way to go still um, to have this. and. It's, it would be a whole new research project. You're quite right. That is the biggest audience because everybody can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm a geographer. I come from a geography background who's had to slowly pick up and have enjoyed and relished picking up technology and code and stuff like that. But ultimately, we're not computer scientists. We may be evolving that way. And we've talked in the past on podcasts about upskilling, and getting familiar with SQL and Python, all this kind of stuff and databases. But there's still a vast chunk of people who use GIS as just something that answers their question, whether they be an ecologist, a planner, or a hydrologist, or whatever. So that would be awesome. Yes, indeed. That's not the focus of the project. I need mm. to highlight that here. Mm. Not the focus of the project to bring unexperienced users to the O data. It's probably a step forward in a sense that it's only one language that you need to speak and not 
multiple languages if you want to switch between the uh, providers. And this language that we need to define for interoperability, reproducibility, and uh, yeah, communication, that's the main focus of the project. Yeah, I, th I think it'd be well worth further funding coming for ongoing projects related to this, because it all seems so good. Um, I just wanted to highlight something and give kudos to whoever it is that's in charge of your documentation for the project, because all too often around open source, there are jokes about the sort of level of documentation, but the documentation online for OpenEO is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was looking at it earlier on, and there's so much in there in terms of the architecture and some of the different process calls that you can do, and they've got examples, and there's, yeah, it's absolutely great. Was having a strong documentation aspect to the project, was that something that your team was very keen on from the start? Yes. Uh... The documentation was, I think, mostly written by me. Excellent. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm, I'm a software developer and sitting here a whole day writing documentation. That's that doesn't sound right, but uh, it's it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's that's a big focus, and uh, it's interesting that you say that it's uh, that you found it very helpful and good because I think there is still very much room for improvement um, because we're mixing up very technical things with. Um, like user-oriented guides to get started and stuff like that. And there, are, I think, especially for users, there need to be much better documentation um, because at the moment all is thrown together into big documentation where you need to find around uh, where your related uh, information is. For a technical user, it is very good in order to quickly understand where the project is and, and what it's trying to do. The thing with documentation, without banging on about it, is that ultimately it's read by people only after the event you see you search stack overflow and you know you or you look on google or you ask your colleague or whatever so you know i was, I was talking today with, with some people and sort of saying this is how you get help in the inbuilt python but you know how how many people use that inbuilt help this connection between um searching documentation and getting the instant response or pointing at potential solutions straight away from the error um, it's not a question, it's just a sort of observation. <laughs> That's indeed true. Our error messages should always link to additional information. That's how we designed it. Um, let's see how that works out. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, when I look at your GitHub account, I mean, there's what, was 17 people or something working on OpenEO, is it? We have 11 partners already, so I think, to, I think it would be around 30 or so. 35. Oh, okay. So it's quite big. Yeah, it's a good thing because in this case, you really can tackle many domains and many use cases and many different backends. I mean, we have so many different things like Vito has GeoPySpark, then we have a completely different engine from Google Earth Engine. And, and um, you spoke with Markus Netteler some weeks ago. Um, yeah. We're also facing DrustJS and their Actinia backend, and uh, yeah, Sentinel Hub as well, and WCPS um, <laughs> in the backend, and all like like to combine and integrate all of them together is quite a tough job, and we haven't really finished it yet. Um, there are quite some issues. Like you can formulate your algorithm in OpenEO already. That should pretty much work um, across all backends, but um, the step beforehand, like loading the data, is quite a challenge at the moment because they all store their data differently and the basically the way the the uh the steps to have uniform common data set representation in a data cube is quite tough to align 
afterwards running the algorithm and the processing works very well but uh, we still have some interoperability issues to solve with getting these data uniform and common across all backends yeah it sounds like you almost sort of when you started you opened a bit of a pandora's box yeah. <laughs> yeah. it is indeed like that like we started with open yo heading heading having a big picture about it yeah and then when you're working through it you're like facing all sort of issues that we need to solve um some issues we were not aware of at all at the start and but that's quite interesting i mean like solving issues on the go and and um really making an impact on that field is, is quite interesting and yeah i mean it's it's really interesting isn't it because you, you know you've got your earth engine collection and you've got a data cube and then you've got an s3 bucket and you know all these different nomenclatures and different points of access basically our internal representation is all data cube based so we need to get all these data into some kind of data cube format yeah okay um and therefore, we basically wrap Google Earth Engine's code into uh, open your data cube view, basically, that is internally managing all the processes that need to run. And that's already quite tricky. And some things I think we will never be able to support in Google Earth Engine, but um, that are very specialized use cases. Um, and the most things should be able to run pretty well in Google Earth Engine as well, despite they don't really have data cube views. Yeah. I get the feeling we could probably talk about this for another hour and a half, but um, <laughs> unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I think this is a really exciting addition to this whole sort of gamut of, of new tools and workflows that are coming out around cloud processing and big data processing and everything else. Matthias, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant talking to you. Yes, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, fa thank you, Matthias. Brilliant. Uh, so we're taking a break from our usual releases for the summer, but don't worry, we'll be back in September. Uh, we've got some great content planned at the start of 2020 as well. Uh, in August, we'll put out a short summer special, so keep an eye out for that. And of course, we'll be around on Twitter too. So for now, enjoy the summer, especially if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, and we'll be back to the usual format in early September. As always, if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Map underscore Andrew. Just as an aside, you can also join our Strava Club if you want, and I won't mention this again for a while because I know it's not really EO related, but we've got 10 athletes already joined. Wow. Uh, please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Cheerio. Bye. Oh, there's a lot of things out there. Are they there?
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.